Shalom Chavra. So I want to start off by thanking Chazak and Torian Time for both putting together the Shir and for all the incredible things they do for Klai Yisrael. So in today's Shir, I want to delve into some of the most incredibly deep ideas relating to Purim. But I want to start off with a story. The story goes like this. There was once a man who was friends with a tremendously important person. And he went over to this person and said, I heard that there's this big banquet, and I know that you're probably connected. Can you get me an in? Can you get me invited to this banquet? I want to go. So this important person said, okay, I'll let you go, but on one condition. You can't make any bets. No bets. So the guy says, okay, sure. Next day comes back. The friend comes to this really important person. And the important person says, so how was the banquet? And the friend says, oh, it was amazing. And before the important person can you know, ask any more questions, he says, listen, I know you told me not to make any bets, but I made one bet. And the guy says, what do you mean? He says, well, you never believe it. The second I went in, a bunch of people came over to me and they said, we'll make you a bet for $100,000 that you're a hunchback. And it was the easiest $100,000 I've ever made because I know I'm not a hunchback. You know I'm not a hunchback. So I went in and I took off my shirt and I got $100,000. And this guy's looking at him, shaking his head, saying, you fool. I made them a bet for a million dollars that they can get you to roll up your shirt in public. And what's the purpose of the story? We're going to find out. Because I want to delve into perhaps... Perhaps the, if not one of the most fundamental and complex topics in all of Torah. Which is trying to understand the, the root of Purim and its relation to Chita Adam and to, to, to the story of Adam Arisha. What do I mean? Well, there's a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara is found in Chulun, Daf Kuf, Lamed Tes. And the Gemara asks a question. It says, Haman min ha-Torah minayin. Where is Haman found in the Torah? Now this question should already be peculiar because Haman isn't in the Torah. <laughs> it's a story that takes place much later in history uh, after Hamishu Chavshu Torah comes to a close. What does the question even mean? Where is Haman in the Torah? But the Gemara doesn't ask that question. It gives an answer. It says, where is Haman found? When Hashem responds to Adam Harishon Sin, and Adam is hiding in Gan Eden, and Hashem says, Hamin Ha'etz, did you eat from the tree? And Hamin spells Haman. And the root of Haman, which is also the root of Amalek, stems from the Chet Adam Harishon, stems from, stems from the story of Gan Eden. And the question we have to ask is, beyond what the question itself means, what is Haman doing in the story of Adam Harishan? What is this concept of rooting the, the concept and the personal figure of Haman and really Amalek? What is the concept of rooting that in the story of Gan Eden? So that's the first question. And the question really frames our whole discussion, which is what is the deep nature and purpose of Amalek? We have to think about this. We, we know Amalek comes up in the story of Purim with Haman. But Amalek also now seemingly comes up in the story of Adam Harisha, Hamin Ha'etz. And Amalek attacks Klai Yisrael right before Ma'an Torah. And we know that Amalek, there's a story of Shaul where he didn't kill Agag, and that, the Gemara says, is actually the source of where Haman's existence came into being that night, the night that Shaul didn't kill Agag, was the night that Agag basically created the seed of Haman. So what is this notion of Amalek? What is Haman? What is Hamin Ha'etz? What is the notion of this concept? But to take this step further, what is the Tikkun? 
against Amalek. If you remember, if you remember the battle against Amalek, there's a cryptic Pasuk that says that when Moshe's hands were raised, they were victorious, but when Moshe's hands were not raised above his head, above his head it says, raised above his head, but when they weren't raised above his head, they were not victorious. So what does this mean to raise your heads above your head? What, what does that have to do with defeating Amalek? And we have to think about really, in general, all the cases, all the times where we're defeating Amalek or we're defeated by Amalek, what is the crucial factor there? What does Amalek represent? What is our battle against Amalek? What are we trying to accomplish? So to really approach this topic, we have to delve into one of the most complex sugyas in all of Torah, which is the chait of Adam. What was the chait of Adam? You ever, you ever think about that? I'm sure very often people have this, this misconception. There is a five-year-old version of the story, which is that Adam Harishon was a person like you and me. He was told by Hashem, don't eat from this tree. And he ate from the tree. And people grow up their entire life thinking that our entire existence in this world is because Adam couldn't just listen to Hashem. One Avera. There was one thing he was told to do. Don't eat from this tree. You can eat anything else. Just don't eat from this tree. And Adam Arishan couldn't control himself and he ate from the tree. I mean, there's so many people out there who are probably like, listen, if I was there, if I was Adam, I wouldn't have done it. I, I would have passed this test. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that were thinking like, you know, if I was there, I would have at least been able to tell him, don't do it. But that's the, the very simplistic understanding of the story. And like with everything in Torah, there's a simple layer and there's something infinitely deeper. And what I want to do is I want to delve into perhaps one of the most complex topics because this is going to go deep, 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 and deeper. There are so many steps and there's a lot of complexity here. So you're going to really have to focus because this isn't just a simple idea. There are many levels and steps to building up this, this idea. And I will not tell you that I have absolute clarity in this because this is something that every single person should always be thinking deeper about because it is the root of our condition of existing in this world. Chet Adam is the paradigmatic sin. Chet Adam and the, you know, Chet Egel, I would say, are the two paradigmatic sins. And they're actually fundamentally connected. We're not going to go deeply into that connection today, but you will see the deep connection as we go deeper. So the truth is as follows. The truth is like this. Chet Adam was not just a simple eating from the Eitzadas. It wasn't something that you and I could even fathom. It was the worst sin that was ever performed. It was the worst thing that ever happened. If you think about it, everything always comes after the root, after the source. So Baal Chachma, someone who's, who's after wisdom, always go after the root principle. If you look at a, a zygote, it contains the root of the entire human being. If you mess something up in the root, it affects everything that comes after it. So if you mess something up in the zygote, one chromosome is missing, chasm does horrible things to the entire human being, you get a cut on a fully grown human being, it heals. When you affect the root, it changes everything. And because Adam Harishon is the root of humanity, Chet Adam, ripple effect, the ripple effect of Chet Adam, affected not only him, not only him and Chava, but all of humanity, all of existence. And we're going to try to understand the effect, but before we understand the effect, we have to understand what what exactly, what, what meaning, let's just build it like this. The Ramban says that before Adam Rishon said he was immortal, he never would have died. Adam Rishon not only got kicked out of Narendan, but he became mortal, he became human, became limited, he became like you and I. 
a more physical being. In a certain sense, we're going to delve into this as well. He created a gap between us and Hashem. Before Adam Rishon sinned, he was intrinsically connected to Hashem in a way that was so visible and clear, in a way that we can't even comprehend. He created this gap where you and I look around, we don't see spirituality, we don't see Hashem. That's a problem. That wasn't always the case. I'll take you one step further. Had Adam Harishan sat still, had he not eaten from Neitzadas, and Shabbos would have come, remember he sinned on Friday, if he wouldn't have sinned, Mashiach would have come and the world would have gone towards destination, everything would have been perfect. The Ramachal talks about this in Das Tfunos, that he had to just wait a little longer. But he didn't. And the world fell, Adam fell, the entire world became more physical. We live in the world that we live in now, where we're trying to, so to speak, carry on the mission that Adam Harishan failed and succeed in what Adam Harishan couldn't. We all become individual neshamas that are kind of, a, 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 like, Adam Harishan became split into humanity. And now we have accepted the role that Adam didn't accept, so it went from Adam, then Noach, then to Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Klaishel accepted the Torah and Harsina, and we became the, the people who received Adam Harishan's mission. But to really understand any of this, we have to go into who Adam Harishan was before he sinned. Because what we're really going to try to understand is what is the nature of Adam Harishan's sin, how is it connected to Pur, how is it connected to, to Haman. But we have to first understand who Adam Harishan was. So first and foremost, Adam Harishan was not a physical being like you and I. Adam Harishan was angelic beyond angelic. He was above the Malachim. Now, first of all, Gan Eden is where Olam HaNashamah says it's where we go when we die. So you can think of Adam Harishan's body is the level of our Nishama. That's the first step to think about. Second step is the, the Mitra says that his physical body was made up of ore. Meaning that when you looked at Adam Harishan, you didn't see a physical being. We've talked about this many times. You see a spiritual being. When, when you and I look at each other, we see physicality. We see, we see physical beings. You can't see someone's thoughts, their soul, their consciousness, their self, their being, their eye. All you can see is, I mean, you can see their physical eye, but not their eye, their self, their ani. When Adam Harishan, before he sinned, you saw Adam Harishan himself. It's like when you look at a light bulb. You don't see the bulb. You see light, it's luminescence. But when you look really closely, you can just see out the bulb itself. That's the same thing. When you looked at Adam Harishan, you saw the Nisham, you saw the self. And the Gemara actually talks about this in Chagigah, Dafyad Beis. It says that Adam Harishan had no physical dimensions. He expanded infinitely from you know one side of the world to the, to the other. And the Lashon of the Gemara is very similar. It says that he saw from one end of the world to the other. And we've talked about this in our Shir of Oraganos, that when the fetus is in the womb, it's in that angelic state. And it uses this exact same lashon. It sees um, with one that has a light above its head, it can see all of reality. The Vilna says that when you're in that fetal state, you're learning kula Torah, kula, as the Gemara says, but you're learning your Torah. You see all of reality perfectly, and you know exactly who you're meant to be. You see the world with crystal clear lens. And that's what Adam Harishan saw. He saw the world perfectly. We're going to delve into the Rambam talking about before Adam sinned. He saw truth, not good or evil. We're, we're going to talk about this in a minute. But the the the, the Medrashim Farish's Rambam also adds in and says something fascinating. It says that the Malachim sometimes mistook Adam for Hashem because Adam was, first of all, way more transcendent than Malachim, but was so similar 
built B'Tselem Elohim was so similar to Hashem that they saw him as being godly. And we have to understand that we're not going to delve so much into that because that's a whole topic in itself. It doesn't mean that Allah mistook him for Hashem. But the notion is like this. Adam Rishon was not a man. He wasn't mortal. He wasn't like you and I. This one is, was, wasn't a simple test. This was a, such a nuanced angelic test where the nature of the test is so nuanced so we can only imagine how nuanced the sin was. So it wasn't something simple where he just ate from the Yisadas, he ate an apple, he ate grapes, he drank wine, whatever, you, there's a whole bunch of different Mepharshim uh, and Sugyas on what the, the fruit of the Yisadas was. We're going to touch on that in a little while. But we have to understand first and foremost that this wasn't a simple thing. Adam Arishan was close to perfect. I'll, I'll tell you a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara says that Adam Harishon's heels shown that they they were illuminated lighter than the more, more filled with more light than the sun even after he died the Gemara talks about someone who went in to you know for whatever reason we're not going to get into the whole story but he went in to to where Adam was buried and he saw that his heels shone greater than the sun well, what, what does that mean the heels are the the concept of death right what is uh, the Nachash's curse Nachash's curse you're going to bite the heels of humankind. What's the nature of biting the heel? So the nachash, we're not going to get in the zuma, the nachash of the, the venom of the snake, but the, na- the the notion is that the heel represents death, and Adam's heels, while he was actually dead, shone brighter than the sun, representing that his lowest part of his body. And the, the svar is very interesting. It's because the, the mind, the moach, and really the keser, but your head is on the highest part of your body. The heels are the lowest part of your body. So that which is most distant from transcendence, and the way the human body is constructed is very deep and powerful. We're not going to get into that right now, but there's so much Torah on that topic. But the lowest part of Adam Rishon's body was, so to speak, still angelic. And he and we talked about this, how Adam Rishon is a combination of all the Neshamas in the world, which means that every single... Once Adam Rishon failed... Humanity became an expression of Adam Rishon. So every single neshama that comes down to this world is a chilak, is a, is a, f- a refraction, and a really just a, a, a piece and a part and a fraction of Adam Rishon's neshama. So you can understand that he is the ikr, the root, the av, the, the absolute essence of the highest part of humanity. And he sinned. How did he sin? That's what we're going to have to understand. If he was so perfect, how did he sin? What was the nature of his sin? Why did he sin? But this gets into, we're going to build into the Rambam, but the Rav Yashar explains that Adam Rishon didn't have a Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara was outside of himself. So if you think about it, the Nachash didn't come from inside his head. It was something external to him. We have a Yitzhahara. The Rav Yashar talks about that. Once Adam Rishon sinned, the Nachash became part of humankind. The Yitzhahara became part of us. The Gemara and Sukkot talks about the different stages of the of the Yitzhahara becoming part of us. First he's a stranger, then he's a guest, then he, so to speak, is the Balabais. And the Rav Yashar talks about how very often we think that when we say I, we're talking about me. But very often that voice inside your head that says, I want that, that's not you. That's your Yitzhahara talking. But that's not how the Yitzhahara functioned originally. Originally, Yitzhahara talked outside of Adam. Adam himself had clarity, perfect clarity. But the Yitzhahara was outside of himself. And once again, the question is, if the Yitzhahara is outside of Adam, how did he sin? And that's going to be the real question. Because the Rambam says that before Adam Rishon sinned, he didn't see good and evil. There wasn't this cheshbon of 
should I do this, should I not do this? He saw truth and falsehood. MS and checker. Good and evil is when things are complicated, you have to make a cheshbon, is this the right decision, is this the wrong decision? But truth and checker is existence and non-existence. The way the Nefesh Chaim talks about it is like a malach. A malach, he technically has free will to do it in Avera, but it would be like walking into fire. Could you walk into fire? Of course you could walk into fire, but would you? Of course not. Why? Because I would die. So it's it's not a question of, do I want to, do not want to, is this good, is this bad? It's, is this true or is it false? Is it real or is it not? And if Adam Harishon is seeing the world like that, how did he sin? Again and again, we're going to have to come to this question. And if you think about it, it's really important just to make this one distinction. Ravdashla talks about this as well. Once Adam Harishon sinned, the world became very different. The world became confusing. Doubt entered into the world. Things became a, a mixture of good and evil. And when you look at something, you don't know, is this good or is this not? We have to now, in, in the world that we live in, we live in a stage of filtration where you have to filter everything. Ideas, food, you eat food, you have to take in the good, excrete the bad. The same applies to ideas. You have to learn and think, is this a good idea? Is this not a good idea? You don't just listen to a shear and that's now your perspective. You break it down. You analyze it. You reconstruct it. You say, what's good, what's not good? What makes sense, what doesn't make sense? How does this connect to everything else? All of life is a filtration process of filtering out the good and reconnecting it and having to basically come back to that original clarity that Adam Rishon had that he lost, that we lost, once he sinned. But before he sinned, he had that clarity, that perfect clarity. And he saw the world through crystal clear lens. Through a crystal clear lens. And the question is, once again, if he saw the world with such clarity, how did he sin? How did he sin? What was the nature of the sin? And why did he sin? That's really what we're going to delve into. And this is going to take patience because there are so many steps to this because we're going to have to really understand why someone like Adam would sin. Well, let's ask like this. What was the purpose of creating the world? Why did Hashem create the world? One of the most fundamental topics that we can really spend hours on, we're not going to, but we could. But the Ramchal talks about this in many, many places. And many Mepharshim do as well. But the Ramchal really clarifies this. He clarifies it for Klaus in a way that other people simply didn't do before him, and in a way where everyone has used the Ramchal as that paradigmatic figure for talking about why Hashem created the world. And in almost every Sefer of the Ramchal, if you look through all this, we're not going to go into all different examples that he gives, but Mesiyah Shasharim, and Derech Hashem, and Astfunos, and Klach Chachma, many, many different places, he says that the reason Hashem created the world was to give man the ultimate good. Hashem is the ultimate good, but he wanted to bestow and give to, to, to someone other than him, meaning to create someone and to give that being the ultimate good. That was one aspect of why Hashem created the world. The second aspect is to reveal Hashem's oneness, which is something we're not going to talk about now. It's really a whole other dimension of this same topic, but it requires much more clarification. So in addition to revealing Hashem's ultimate oneness, not that Hashem is one, but He's the ultimate oneness, Hashem created the world to give the ultimate good. What's the ultimate good? A connection with Him. So why didn't Hashem just give the ultimate good to mankind? Because... The ultimate good is a real connection with Hashem. A real connection with Hashem is the ability for someone else to be godly and to experience godliness. If Hashem would have given Adam Harisha, or really if Hashem would have given Adam Enchav, would have given them that gift for free, as Dram Chab quotes the Gemara in Yushami, it would have been embarrassing. Because anyone who doesn't earn their greatness is embarrassed by it. If, someone, if you get free handouts, you, you don't feel like it's yours. So... 
the obvious question is, okay, why couldn't Hashem just create mankind that he would enjoy free handouts? So you can't really say that based on our experience of life, Hashem couldn't have done that. It's a limit on Hashem. But it's much deeper than that. Because the very essence of the connection with Hashem is being like Hashem. If Hashem would have given it to us for free, we would have been the opposite of Hashem. Hashem would have been the giver, we would have been the receiver. Hashem would have been the creator, we would have been the created. Hashem would have free will and be able to, to do to, to express his will fully without any limitations, we would just have absolutely no free will. We'd just be forced into being whatever we were created to be. We would be the exact opposite of Hashem. And the reason why you can't have a genuine relationship with a rock is because you're nothing like a rock. If we would have been nothing like Hashem, we wouldn't be able to have the ultimate connection with Hashem. So Hashem created us so that we can become godly. We can become the ultimate versions of ourselves. We can earn our greatness, earn our godliness, and become that. We're created with the potential of being a B'Tselem Elohim. But through our life of choosing and creating ourselves and building ourselves, we become B'Tselem Elohim. We manifest our potential. So the question is like this. Why did Adam choose otherwise? If Adam had this clarity, he knew this. He knew that his job was not to eat from the Yitzhak That was his tafkid. That was his achieving his perfection. Choosing to become perfect. Choosing to listen to the Ratzon Hashem. Choosing to manifest his potential and connect Hashem in the deepest way possible. Why would he have eaten from the Yitzhak Nothing the Nachash could have or would have said would have changed his mind in that sense. So what is going on here? And that is the essence of this very question. The only thing that could have prompted and could have convinced Adam to enter into this Avera is if he thought somehow that this would be the ultimate Ratzon Hashem. This will be the way to connect to Hashem in the deepest way, to connect to truth, to connect to Hashem in a deeper way, to fulfill his potential, to become the ultimate Salam Elohim. Which is, by the way, what the Nachash says, you can become Elohim. But we still have to understand how he could possibly have disobeyed Hashem's will. What is the, how is that even a hava meaning here? So we have to think of it like this. What did Hashem tell Adam to do? Really, he told him to do nothing, right? right? That, that was the really, your job is to work the garden and to guard it. But really, your, your only job in it, the Iker was not doing something, he was not doing something, he was being passive. What was his job? His job was to not eat something. It wasn't learn Torah, fulfill mitzvahs, eat from the Eitzachayim. And if you think about it, we're not going to talk about this too much. What was the Eitzachayim? According to some, it was everything else. Because we don't know where the Eitzachayim is. Why? Because the only thing he wasn't supposed to do was eat from the Eitzachayim. Everything else was life. Uh, if you understand it like that, the whole purpose of creation was for Adam not to do something. Just don't eat from the Eitzachayim. Then Mashiach will come, one Shabbos comes, everything will be perfected. There will be nothing else to be, to be done. Everything will be perfect. What in the world went wrong? Why did Adam disobey Hashem's direct command, which is just don't mess up, don't eat from the Yitzhadas, sit still and wait? What was it? So we, we have to think of it like this. So you have to understand how strange this tafkid is. If Adam is here to achieve perfection, it's such a strange way to achieve perfection by not doing anything. For example, it's like, it's like if someone gives you a glass pitcher and says, here's what I want from you. Don't drop it. And Adam says, that's my whole purpose in life, not to drop this glass pitcher, just sit here and wait. Like, that's why I was created. I was created for greatness, to strive, to achieve, to become perfect. And that's what I'm here for, just to hold this, just to wait, just to watch this Eitzadas and not eat it. What did Adam do? He shattered that glass pitcher and said, no, I'm going to shatter this and put it back together. That's something worth doing. 
but Hashem didn't ask him to do that. So why did he do it? Why did he shatter the world? Why did he make it that the world falls apart, that he cre- creates this gap between us and Hashem? If you want to think of it, another, another mashal is like an engineer. An engineer whose his job is just to, to connect one circuit. If you connect one circuit, then extraordinary amount of voltage will be able to stream through and everything will be lit, the whole city will be lit up. But your job is just do one tiny little thing. The Adam's like, that's what I was created. Do one time. Better to just destroy the whole city and build the whole city for you. Meaning, if I want to express my love for you, Hashem, if I want to achieve my ultimate greatness, which is why I'm here, why not create a greater mission for me to achieve? And that's really what Adam was, was grappling with, which is, all you want me to do is to exist? To be here and to just not mess up something? Like, wouldn't it be so much better if I had something to do? And what does Hashem say? Yeah. <laughs> I know I created with all this potential. I know I created you with all this potential wisdom and ability to create and to become. But I just want you to just sit here and, and don't do anything. And what does Adam Harishan do? What, what, what's, what's Adam Harishan's thought process? Because Hashem is basically, this is your free will choice. This is your path to greatness. Just don't mess up. Don't do anything. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. What is Adam Harishan trying to figure out? He's basically saying, Hashem said I shouldn't eat it. But what does Hashem really mean? What is Hashem's real intent here? Because if Hashem created me in the world, which itself is distant from Him, meaning there, there had to be a gap for Hashem to create. Hashem, Hashem had to create. We're not going to go into the, the deeper questions and, and, and questions you could ask, um, which would really take us forever to really delve into. But Hashem created a makom. Hashem is the makom of the world. The olam is not mikomo. Hashem is the makam of the world. We exist within Hashem. Now, if Hashem created us within Him, and there is some sort of gap, then why would He do that? It must be that He wants us to close this gap, meaning part of the purpose of our, our achieving our perfection is closing the gap between this world and Hashem. Now, the gap that existed in the time of Adam HaRishon before he sinned was infinitesimal. And Adam Rishon knew this. He said, if the gap is meant to be closed, wouldn't it be better to create the ultimate gap? Wouldn't it be better to create a gap that is so much bigger? Because as of now, the gap is really tiny, and just by not eating from the Tadas, I'll close it. But if the whole purpose of my existence is to journey back to Hashem, wouldn't it be so much more epic and extraordinary and to show so much more of my love and devotion to Hashem if I created a greater gap between me and Hashem, and then closed it? You hear the svarah? The svarah is basically, if I go farther away, think about this, if two people are chained together, is it such a chiddish that they're together? No. And if they're a block away, is it such a chiddish if a person walks down the block to them? No. Right? That, that's not an epic story of love. That's not showing commitment. It's not showing devotion. What shows devotion? If you're ripped from each other, if you're thrown on separate parts of the world, and you overcome trials and tribulations, you go through stormy seas, you climb mountains, you go through jungles, you overcome obstacles, you get sick and you overcome sickness, and you go through life-threatening circumstances, you go through everything and anything to get back to the person you love, that's love. That's devotion, that's commitment. That is truth. That's something eternal. And Adam Arishan basically had this cheshbon. He said, as of right now, 
I'm not showing that much love to Hashem by not eating from the Yitzhadas. If I eat from the Yitzhadas, see, see, that's... Adam knew what would happen. He knew the world would fall apart. He knew that he would become mortal. He knew he was going to die. He knew that things would become harder. He knew that the world would become this excruciatingly painful challenge of navigating this world back to Hashem, which is our job. He knew that. But he said, that's real love. That's real commitment. That's devotion. But what's the problem? Hashem didn't ask him to do that. Hashem never asked him to create this gap and to eat from the Yitzhadas and to do this. And, and the question is, what is Adam thinking? That's great. Hashem didn't ask you to do that. So here's one possibility. One possibility is that maybe Adam said, it's true because that's difficult. That's hard. Maybe he didn't expect this of me, but I'm willing to do it. You understand? Meaning, of course Hashem didn't command me to do that. I knew that, you knew that. But he didn't ask me to do it because it's so beyond the the minimum wage, the minimum level, the minimum expectations. I'm willing to go above and beyond. I'm willing to go way beyond the expectations, way beyond what I'm expected to do. And you can say that in a, in a deeper sense, in a deeper sense, it was only because Hashem didn't ask. It was only because Hashem didn't ask that this now became the ultimate expression of love. Because if Hashem would have asked, it would have been expected. This, this would have been, this would have been the, the chiv. But this wasn't the chiv. This was so beyond what was expected. And that, in Adam's mind, was the ultimate act of love. I'm going above and beyond. I'm showing how much I love you. I'm going to do the utmost. I'm going to risk my existence, risk my life. I'm going to become mortal. I'm going to go through suffering and pain. It's going to become so much more difficult. I'm going to lose connection with you. I know that. And I'm still willing to do it. And that really is what he concluded. He concluded, we're going to break the world down. I'm going to eat from the Yitzhadas. I'm going to become limited. The whole world's going to become limited. I'm going to become physical. I'm going to get kicked out of Ganeed. And I'm going to have to climb my way back in. I'm going to have to find my way back to you. I'm going to have to retrace my steps. I'm going to have to you know, go through an entire lifetime of struggle and show how committed to you I am, Hashem. Show how much I love you. And that's brilliant. And, and, and if you think about it, if you really think about it, what was the problem? Right? Adam basically said, I'm not going to be passive. I'm not just going to do a time. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, right now the world's heading towards destination by itself. If, if I don't mess up, the world will be perfected. It's only if I actively mess I don't even have to do anything. Adam realizes he's not doing anything. The only thing he would have to do is to not do something, and that would be his mission. So Adam creates this, this, this possibility of creating the ultimate mission where he'd have to do the ultimate and give up the ultimate and achieve the ultimate to connect to Hashem, to achieve His perfection. And in a certain sense, it was almost it was almost like the Zohar. The Zohar says that in a, in a room that's fully lit, a candle can't do anything. It's only when there's darkness that a candle can shine bright. That's where the impact of the candle is. And Adam basically thought to himself that if I create this gap, I can achieve greatness. I can show my love for Hashem. I can achieve my potential. I can create light within that darkness. Of course there'll be darkness. I'll be disconnected from Hashem in a way that I can't even fathom, but that's fine because I'll show Hashem how much I love Him. What was the problem? What was the problem? The problem was like this. Hashem didn't command it. 
Hashem did not command it. And man has this ability to use independent intellect and to come up with cheshbonos. We can decide what we're supposed to do. And Adam's way looks a lot better. Don't get me wrong. It looks a lot more uh, tempting to go Adam's route because it's so much more of an active display of avas Hashem, of command to Hashem. But Hashem didn't command it. And what's the real problem? If Hashem didn't command it and you do it at this stage, there's always a potential possibility that you are dead wrong. And that gets back to our introductory story. We think we're so brilliant. We do things that are so brilliant, but we just don't realize that our calculations, as brilliant as we are, and as much as we are supposed to become transcendent, intellectually brilliant, post-rational, rational, emotionally brilliant, physically brilliant, all the levels of human greatness and human potential, they are always limited within a certain construct. And there's always that which transcends. Hashem's calculation, just like that impressive friend who made calculations that were more important, that, that's the real thing, is to realize that your calculations are always going to be limited. So let's delve into this. What was the limitation? Because Adam had a clear calculation, but Hashem had a clearer calculation. Now, maybe Adam was right. Maybe Adam really should have done that. So we have to delve a little deeper, because Adam knew that. Adam knew that Hashem had calculations that were greater than his. So what was the real purpose of Adam's calculation? Adam knew that this was an Avera. But there's a powerful concept in Shas, a concept which we really need to understand, called Navera Lishma. And Avera Lishma. What is Avera Lishma? So we know Lishma means when you do something for the positive, with, a, with the ideal intent. And Navera is something that is something that's Asr, something Hashem says you cannot do. So the question is like this. What is the nature of Avera Lishma, and why was Adam thinking that he should or could do it? Every mitzvah and every Avera has two components. One is the physical act, and the other is the inner intention. So a mitzvah is a positive act, and when you have kavana, you have an, a mitzvah, lishma. And Avera is a negative act, and when you have negative intentions, it's an Avera that has negative intentions. But Avera lishma is an Avera that, has, that you're doing it for a higher purpose. You're doing it to serve Hashem. So the act might be wrong, but you're doing it for the right reasons, for the right purposes. And we have so many cases throughout Shas and throughout Torah of Averis Lishma, where the Avera is done Lishma, and the question is, how do we approach it? So the Gemara Nazir, Davchav Gimelam Beis, says something fascinating. It says that the Havamin is that Godol Avera Lishma, me mitzvah shalol lishma. That an Avera Lishma is not only okay, but it's better than a mitzvah shalol lishma. So a mitzvah lishma is obviously the best. The best, it's a good action and good intent. Avera Lishma is a bad action, but good intent. The Havamin is that it's better to do something that the act is wrong, but the inner intent is good, meaning the intent is more important than the act. But the Malskana is that they're equal. It's at least equal. It's at least equal. And we have cases of an Avera Lishma that is done throughout throughout the Torah. We're going to go through some of them. But how does it work? So there's a couple different ways. Not going to go, we can really do a whole Ian share of the, the Lamedus of Avera Lishma. And it's really very similar to many sugis and shas like Kimla Bidrana A lot of cases where something is knocked out or disregarded or not as important. One understanding of Avera Lishma is that the Lishma intent is more important than the act. So basically you have good intent that a certain amount of points, and you have the Avera, which is an act, a certain amount of points. The intent, let's say, is 10 points, and the Avera is, is let's say, 7 points. So if you do a calculation, it's better 
to do an Avera Lishma because the intent outweighs the act. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that the intent knocks out the act. That the intent is so important that even though it's objectively a wrong act, it be, uh, you, you can almost say that we, we ignore the Avera or we knock out the Avera. Two different ways. That, that's very different, by the way, because ignoring means the Avera is still there. Knocking out means not even Avera. The highest way of approaching this, which is the real Lamdash approach, is that the positive intent transforms transforms this into a mitzvah. Now, is it like a mitzvah lishma? I don't know if we're going to go that far. But where basically the intent, Asaydochalosa says the same concept where you can transform something into a positive act. And we have the same concept by Kim Levi-Drapenay, how, how you view when things are knocked out, how you approach these, these concepts in Shas. But that means that Avir Lishma could be seen as something that Hashem wants you to do. He didn't command you to do it because he said don't do it. That's the Avir part. But it's something that Hashem wants you to do. Now, there are many examples of an Avir Lishma throughout Shas. So one example, and really throughout Torah Shabbat as well. But we're going to go first through Torah Shabbat So, one example is Lot and his daughters. His daughters, Lot's daughters, ha- have children with him. Amon and Moab. And what's their calculation? The world's going to end. In their mind, the world was going to end. They were trying to populate the world. So the intent was so good, the, the act was horrible. But because the intent was good, it's not very Lishma. Another example, Yaakov marries Leah and Rachel. Can't marry two sisters. Oh, were mitzvahs being kept before Ma'antor? That's a whole sig we're not going to get into, but the answer to if they were being kept before Ma'antor is that it wasn't a Lishma. You can say it was mutter before Ma'antor. We can also say it's not a Lishma. Another example is Amram married Yochavit, his aunt. Avir Lishma. We have Aaron with the Egel, which we're not going to get into it right now because that's a whole topic what Aaron's Cheshmas were, but his intentions were it was an Avir Lishma. We have other examples after Mantar, which we'll delve into a little later, which is Esther. Esther went and had you know, a relationship with Achashverosh. Oh, but it was Mutter. But even if it was Mutter, when she went actively, remember in the story of Purim where Mordechai says, now you have to go to Achashverosh, and Esther says, Kasher Avanati Avanati, the Gemara said that, that was, it was, it was Aser for her to go to Achashverosh, but it was not Vira Lishma. Why was it Aser? Because Esther was married to Mordechai. So that's Gilearias. But it's Navir Lishma, she's saving all of Klyasrol. That was an exception. We're gonna to have to delve into that a little deeper a little later. But another example is Chizkiyo. Gemar and Brachos Dafiram and Aleph says that Chizkiyo was sick, he was on his deathbed. And Elisha, actually no, it was Elisha, it was Yeshaya. Yeshaya came to him and said, You're you're gonna die. You know, you're 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 going to die. Actually, I don't know, I don't actually recall if he was sick, but I remember that Yeshaya says he's going to die. And the question is, why Why was Chizkiyahu? He was a tremendous tzaddik, Chizkiyahu. You know, so he's close to being Mashiach. The Gemara says that all the Jews were learning in his generation, Gemara Kama. So the answer that was given to him is that you didn't fulfill Puravu. So he tells you, Shai, what do you mean I didn't fulfill Puravu? I saw through through the Vu that I was going to have Menashe, one of the greatest Roshayim in Jewish history. He's going to put do horrible things, horrible things. If anyone who knows what Menashe did, we're not going to discuss what Menashe did. One of the most, you know, biggest Rishayim in Jewish history. Chizkiyos, I don't want to bring him into the world. And Yeshaya says, it's not up to you to make these calculations. 
It's not up to you. You're not. You don't play God. So Chizkiyot saw that he was right. He did teshuva, and uh, he got better. And he had he had Menashe, and we know what happened with Menashe. So the question is, what did Chizkiyot do was wrong? So this was an example of an avir lishma where it was done inappropriately. How so? So there's a couple different ways of understanding. One uh, approach is that it's just this wasn't his business. He th- saw through Nevua that he was going to have Nasha. This is something Hashem clearly wanted to happen. But another slightly different approach, which is really what we're going to delve into right now, is that it would have also been good for him. No one wants to have a son who's a Rasha. It would have been good for Cheskiyahu to not have Menashe. Not just good for Hashem, not just good for Klaus, but good for Cheskiyahu. And there was just a slight amount of ego. Just a slice. And obviously, we can't even begin to understand the level of Chizkiyot. was on his own as Mashiach. We can't even begin to understand that. And this really gets into interesting sugyas of when it's mutter not to engage in the midst of Puravu, which we're not going to talk about. Gemara actually has other cases where the where Chazal talk about the potential possibility of not engaging in Puravu. But this case was different because Chizkiyot, either through Nevuah saw he was supposed to, or there was just a slight amount of ego here. And that's the real qualification. Avera lishma is mutter as long as it's lishma 100%. Not even in the inkling of ego. It cannot be for you at all. It has to be 100% for Hashem. And we can't do this. It, whether people were ever able to do this is always a question. Is there ever an ability to do Avera lishma? And there were. We saw it with Esther. We saw it with you know, different cases throughout Jewish history. There were Avera lishma. We don't don't get any ideas here. Don't, <laughs> you give this year, and you always have some people say, "Oh, like you know, I have some really important avirlishmas that I have to do." Like we are not on the level where we can do that, and the reason is because we are not on the level where we can even connect to the idea of doing something one hundred percent lishma without any ego, without any guide, without any sense of I, me, I want to do this, and that was the real question is that if there's any personal benefit, if there's any element of gaiva or ego, but, you know, for Esther, she did it completely for Klaishal. This went against everything we're going to get into in a couple minutes, but she, for nine years, for years and years and years, she went to Achashverosh in a way that was mutter, and now she has to go in a way that's usher. This went against everything Esther was. She did this for Klaishal. There was no element of ego. Now, the question is, what about for a part? Sorry, what about for Adam? Adam wasn't able to do an Avriya Lishma. Adam wasn't able to do this really genuinely for Hashem. And that was the Freudian slip, because we're going to get to Purim in a couple minutes. But what was Adam's thought process? This is an Avriya Lishma. I know it's wrong. I know it's Asr. Hashem commanded me not to do it. But really, this is my ultimate way of serving Hashem. This is the ultimate Lishma. I'm doing this for the right purposes, the right reasons. I just want to give myself to Hashem. I just want to be in Avriya Hashem. And, and and this is if you want to really get to this is this is this is incredible, this is incredible, because what was Adam trying to do? He was trying to accomplish a yuridah l'tzorachaliyah. So yuridah l'tzorachaliyah is a concept which comes up in many cases. For example, you do teshuva. The according to one opinion of the Gemara, not only do you, are you mevatel the avir when you do teshuva, teshuva meava. Rish Lakish talk discussion of the Gemara. Not only do you mevatel. But you turn it into zechusim, which according to many becomes mitzvah. So you're turning avirus into mitzvahs. Really, originally it was a yurida. You did avirus, but it turns into an aliyah. 
because you become someone even greater because of the Yerida. So Adam was trying to engage in this Yerida, yes, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know it's going to make me fall. I'm going to become limited mortal, like the Ramban said. I'm going to become a, a physical human being. But it's worth it because I can rise so much higher, show so much more love and devotion and commitment to Hashem, become so much more of an Evet Hashem, achieve my potential, become Salam al to the ultimate extent. And if you want to take it a step further, what, what is uh, this this concept of Yerida L'Sarachalia? So th- this notion of going down for the sake of coming back up, what is Adam Harishan, what is the Yetzadas? According to many opinions, it was wine, it was grapes. Every single Matzah Shabbos, we drink wine. But we only drink wine when we're being Makadesh something. So when we enter into Shabbos, we make Kiddush on wine. When you get married, a first meal, these notions of wine are always to uplift physical experiences. Why are we drinking wine on Matzah Shabbos? But that's the idea. You read the Shabbos is made on Habit, taste of Om Habit, taste of destination, taste of perfection, taste of the ultimate spiritual truth. But we leave Shabbos every week, coming down into the week. Why? You read the because what we achieve during the week makes next Shabbos even higher. And that's this notion that Adam was like, yes, of course I could be passive and not eat from Eitzadas. If I do that, though, we'll go straight into Shabbos. If I make a Yerida, though, we can go even higher. And this, this notion is very deep because according to many opinions, it was wine that was the Eitzadas. And right after Noah, because what happens, the mobbles, the destruction of the world, the recreation of the world... We, we've gone into many times what the, the depth of why water, because water is the medium of recreation. That's why you go into mikvah to break yourself down and recreate yourself. So Hashem covered the world with water and then recreated it. Just like originally the world was covered in water and it split and dry land came from, you know, emerged from the water. Hashem re-emerged the, water, the world in water, had the mabel. Then the world emerged, re-emerged again. That was a recreation of the world. What was the first thing Noach did? According to many, it was a repeat of Adam's sin. He got drunk. And according to many, he basically replanted the Eitzadas and re-engaged in that same problem. So we're not, it's a really a whole topic is, is, is you know, what, what exactly Noah was thinking and, and what was going on there. But very simply put, it was the same idea. What was Adam's intention? A Yeridah So here's, before we transition to Parim, the question's like this. Where did Adam go wrong? Sounds great. I mean, it sounds so great. Because he was willing to die. He was willing to give his life to Hashem, to sacrifice, to enter into danger, to, to give up everything so he can serve Hashem in the ultimate way. Why, what was wrong with this cheshbon? And the answer is exactly what we said before. Is that there was an inkling of ego, of I, of me, I. I want to do this. Of course I want to do it for Hashem. But if there, and especially at this very root, if there's any inkling of ego, then it breaks everything down. And, and if you think about it, this is, the irony is profound. The irony is profound because, of course, there's a level of independence and ego. What was Hashem's real command to Adam? Is I want you to become great. I want you to use your free will. But what do I want you to use your free will to? Not, not to break down and to achieve greatness in the revealed world, your ultimate act of free will, your ultimate act of greatness is to give it up. Your ultimate act of free will, think about that again and again and again, just repeat that again, it's mind-blowingly incredibly deep and powerful. The ultimate challenge of free will was to give up our free will. Why? 
Because by giving up our free will, we connect Hashem in the deepest way. By reconnecting with Hashem in the deepest way. But if I have to do it, me, I, that's tapping into independence. That's tapping into ego separateness and disconnect from Hashem. Even though the ultimate intention is to connect to Hashem. It's so nuanced and so powerfully deep. And it will take time to, to really, you have to think about this. Because it's, it's not easy to wrap your head around. But the ultimate act of greatness, the ultimate achievement of our perfection was to give up our free will, give up our ego, and recognize Eno and Milvado, that there's nothing but Hashem, and that if Hashem, if this is the Ratzon Hashem, that is my ultimate greatness, because there is that which is above me. And the moment that it's about me and I, and I want Olo Haba, I want greatness, I want to achieve perfection, I want to be in Hashem, I want to do it for you, but I want to do it for you. That's the problem. And we're not on the level where that's really a problem because like, we can tap into that conceptually, but we're, we struggle enough to be in Hashem and to get to the point where we're doing the right things and achieving our greatness. But the highest, 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 highest level is where we give up our ego. But not that we become nothing, but, with the rec- but that we recognize that by giving up our ego, by giving up that aspect of self, that's how we achieve our ultimate self. Because you by yourself, without being rooted in truth, don't exist. It's only when you give up that limited identity of self and recognize that you are part of something infinitely beyond yourself. And that was Adam's real challenge in a very nuanced way. That's the ultimate, ultimate achievement of greatness, is recognizing who you really are, where you really are, where your greatness comes from. This is a topic which really requires a lot of, a lot of thought. But, but that was really Adam's challenge, is whether I listen to Hashem or whether I choose to not listen to Hashem with the, with the intention of really listening to Hashem in the deepest way. And that was Adam's Avir Lishma. And if you think about it, Adam knew he was supposed to give something up. This is powerful. Adam knew he was supposed to give something up. But he thought that he was supposed to give up his connection with Hashem. He thought he was supposed to give up his closeness, his connection, his place in the Ganeiden, to even the das and create this gap. But what was he, he was really supposed to give up was his free will. And he didn't give that up. That was the, that was the ego. That, that, and once again, we're talking about the greatest human being, if you can even call it other than that, who has ever lived. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu was able to climb back up to a similar status. Adam Arishan was beyond anything you can fathom. And we're talking about things we can't understand. Why do we talk about this? To connect to these ideas so that we can connect to them for our own lives. We can never expect to fully understand these ideas. And don't think that you now understand Chayt Adam. We don't. But the reason of tapping into these ideas is to re-tap into the root of why we are here, how we are here, and what our tafkid is. Because now we can delve into one of the most profound topics in Torah, which is understanding Purim, understanding Hamin Ha'itz, understanding what happened after Adam HaRishon sinned, which is our world. And it's important to note that tremendous good came from Adam HaRishon's sin. It's something which it's hard to say, because no, that was the ultimate sin. No, trans good. All of our life is because of Adam HaRishon's sin. It's hard to even fathom a reality where Adam Rishon didn't sin. Is it possible for Adam Rishon not to have sinned? Was the world supposed to be as it is now? Could it have been somewhere else? These are questions which we don't have. You can't answer those questions. You can think about them. You can't answer them. But tremendous good came from it, but it was the wrong decision. And that's important to keep in mind. It was the wrong decision. So now let's delve deeper. Now that we're here, we're up to the next stage of this year. And I know it's long. I know it's... It's very deep, but it is going to be worth it, I promise you. Because what happens after Adam Rishon sins? 
strangest story in the Torah, perhaps. Perhaps the strangest story in the Torah. What happens? Adam hides. Adam was the, the we just talked about Adam Harishan. Perfect being, angelic, understood everything, saw the world total clarity. He sins and he becomes mortal. He becomes limited. He becomes, you know, the, the Yitzhar now becomes part of him. What happens? He hides. He hides from Hashem. He hides from Hashem. Can you understand how ludicrous that is? How, 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 you can't even fathom the, the possibility of hiding from Hashem. You're just talking to Hashem. Hides from Hashem. But what's the idea? We're not going to talk about Adam Rishon becoming physical and therefore needing clothes. That's a whole topic which really requires tremendous, tremendous discussion. It's, it's one of the most powerful topics. The, the purpose of clothes, how it's not only about hiding, but revealing your dignity and your, your higher self. But Adam Rishon is now embarrassed. He's embarrassed of sinning. He's embarrassed of sinning for the Yitzhadas. He's embarrassed that he now looks the way he looks, that he's naked. And he hides. And, and it's, it's unbelievable because what do you think Adam's really hoping He's hoping it, deep down, he's probably hoping that Hashem is going to say, it's going to be all right. You know, I know you, you messed up, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to bring you back, you know, to who you were, to who you're supposed to be, and it's okay. Adam's hoping that Hashem will make everything all right. And, and what was the real pain of the situation? Is Adam was just in the most intimate relationship with Hashem that you can possibly humanly even Consider, we can't fathom it, consider it. The, the greatest connection to Hashem that you can possibly imagine. And he just lost that. He's alone, distant, disconnected. And what happens? Hashem's response is, is mind-blowing. What does Hashem say? Hashem says, Ayaka. Where are you? Hashem says to Adam, where are you? And then he says, what Hamin Ha'etz? Did you eat from the tree? I don't know. I'm just Hashem. Just the creator of all existence. The root of all of existence. I know everything. But where are you? Did you eat from the tree? What is going on? What is Hashem saying? But this is unbelievable. If you look at the Baal Mashava, they talk a lot about Hester Panim. Hester Panim. That Hashem, me the connected, me the Hashem interacts with you based on how you interact with Him. The pasuk that's often quoted is, is Hashem tzilcha al Hashem is like your shadow. Your shadow reacts to how you act. What did Adam do? You're you're gonna Adam's. What is what is Adam basically saying? Adam's saying I I can sin. I, I can pretend like Hashem's not there. I can pretend like Hashem doesn't see what I'm doing. I can pretend like I can make my own decisions, do whatever I want, like I'm separate from Hashem, like I'm disconnected from Hashem. What does Hashem say? Okay. I'm going to now interact with you exactly on your own terms. You think I can't see you? Ayako, where are you? You think you can do things against my will and I don't know? I mean, did you eat from the tree? What is this? This is the transition into a new stage of reality called doubt, suffix. What's real? What's not real? What happened? What do I know? What does Hashem know? Is Hashem real? Does Hashem exist? Of course Hashem exists, but does He know what's going on? How do I know He exists? Maybe, I, I mean, Adam just spoke to him, but now he's questioning everything. Does Hashem know that I'm here? How does Hashem even say Ayaka? How does Hashem say Aminez? What is going on? And remember, Adam knew that he was going to enter into the situation, and yet he couldn't possibly understand 
the extent. He couldn't understand the experience of living in a reality where he doesn't know what he believes. He doesn't know if Hashem sees him, if Hashem knows what's going on. And that is the ultimate Gehenim, is living in this state of doubt, of what is, who am I, where am I supposed to go, what am I supposed to do, what are the answers, just give me the answers, tell me what I'm supposed to do. And Hashem says, Ayaka, Hamin Ha'etz, Hamin Ha'etz, Haman, this is the root of Amalek. This is the root. Well, let's think about it. It's Ayaka. What's Ayaka? Ayaka is the same source as Eicha. Eicha is the Megillah that we read on, uh, you know, we read this by Tishabav, talking about our destruction of the connection between us and Hashem. The base Amikdash is the Makam. Amikdash is the Makam where we connect Hashem most potently. We talk about this many times. The base Amikdash is the point of connection between us and Hashem. It represents the mouth, which connects two people together. You eat food to connect your soul to your body. It's also the makam of kissing, where two people connect. It's the Gemara says that it's where Hashem kisses the world. It's where Hashem eats, where Hashem speaks to us. The, the Torah says that Hashem spoke to Moshe, um, you know, through the Kruvim in the makam, where in the which is you know where the makam Hamikdash is, and back in the Midbar it was in the Mishkan. That's a really a whole topic for those of you who didn't catch that. Don't worry about it at all. But what, what's this notion of, of Eicha, of Ayaka? It's the breakdown of connection between us and Hashem. This marks Tisha B'av. This marks Adam's destruction story of both himself and his connection with Hashem. And it's, it's terrifying. He's living now in this state of other doubt. Where, as the Rambam said before, Adam saw with clarity, Shekhar and Emes. Now he sees with doubt. What's real? What's not real? Who am I? Where am I? What am I supposed to do? Just tell me. Give me the answers. Give me clarity. But he doesn't have clarity anymore. And that's what the Gemara says, that this is the source of Haman. Hamin Haetz. What does this mean? Let's, let's get back to our original questions. Let's start with understanding the question. What, is the, what does the Gemara mean where it says, what's the Torah source for Haman? So, the, the Midrash says, the stack of of our Amashem, looked into the Torah and created the world. The Torah is the blueprint of reality. It's, the, it's like a projector you see on the screen, what's rooted in the film. The world is an expression, emanation of, the, of a higher Torah reality, higher Torah root of the spiritual world. When you want to understand anything that happens in the physical world or throughout history, you look into the Torah for its source. And we're saying, where's the root of Haman? Where's the root of Amalek? Where's the root of all of this? And what does the Torah say? What does the Gemara say? Look in the very beginning of the Torah. Why are we looking in the, in, in the story of Adam Arich? And why is that the, the root of Amalek? The further back into the root something is, the more fundamental. We said this already. If you look at a zygote, one chromosome is missing, we said, that can destroy the whole, it can, it can have horrible effects, unfortunately, on the human being. You take a fully formed human being, you get a cut, same knife, same size cut. Doesn't do that much damage. Can heal 99.99% of the time. Haman exists at the root of reality. Haman exists at the root of Adam's sin. Haman exists at the root of the transition once Adam sinned. What is Hamin Ha'etz? What is Haman? It is when doubt enters the world. Haman and Amalek represent Suffolk. They represent when doubt enters the world, when we can no longer see with clarity, where Emes and Shekhar becomes Tovira, where you're confused, you're, 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 you're striving for clarity, but you no longer have clarity. And that is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Because if you think about it, we're going to have to understand what is... What is Haman? What is Amalek? 
Because remember, when Adam sinned, he created a gap between us and Hashem. That gap, that gap that exists is Amalek. That is Haman. What is the gematria? You ever think about it? What is the gematria of Amalek? The gematria of Amalek is Suffolk. The gematria of Amalek is Suffolk. Amalek is doubt. What's real? Who am I? Where am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? Am I really supposed to do this? Is this the truth? Is this who I am? What is Haman? What is Amalek? Let's delve deeper. So, Amalek represents this gap. And if you think about it, even within the word itself, Amalek is Malika. What's Malika? It's how you know the Kohanim will shecht birds. You cut, you cut the head off from the body. What's connecting the head from the body? It's disconnecting higher from lower, the physical from the spiritual, us from Hashem. That's what Amalek represents. This disconnect this confusion. And in a certain sense, you can argue it's also a head that's not loyal to the body. It's an intellect that doesn't fuse the physical and spiritual together. I'm not going to go into this so much, but where does Amalek come from? Amalek comes from Esav. Haman and Amalek, they all come from Esav. Esav had a son, and son had Amalek. What's buried in Mara Samach Esav's head. Because in a certain sense, we're not going to get into all the details right now, Amalek, the, the head is still good, but Amalek disconnects the head from the body. That's why Esau's head was, was fine. Esau's head was able to go into Mars Amalek. It was the, the inability of the physical and spiritual to synthesize of, of that philosophy of disconnecting the higher from the lower. That's what Amalek represents, that gap. What I want to delve into is who is Amalek? What do they really represent? And what is our Muhammad against them? What is Purim really about? So let's delve into this. Let's start with this. When did Amalek attack Kleisrael? Amalek attacks Kleisrael at, at the most inopportune time. Kleisrael had just come out of Mitzrayim, the Makos and the Kriyasi Yamsuf, and Hashem has shown himself to the world, and everyone knows that Kleisrael is Hashem's chosen people. And there's a Midrash that says that all of, all of the nations of the world went to Bilam, and they said, Bilam, you're our Navi, what's going on? And, and the Midrash says that the, the Makos weren't just happening in Mitzrayim, they were happening all over the world. And everyone was like, is Hashem bringing another Mabu? Is Hashem destroying the world again? And, and Bilam says, no, Hashem was the Amitin. Hashem is giving the Torah to Klai Yisrael, to his nation. And all the nations of the world start flocking to Ma'an Torah. Tahrsina takes up the Torah with them. And the Gemara goes through where Hashem offered other nations the Torah. Well, originally they were actually going to accept it. And the Gemara Nebuchadnezzar Zohar talks about this. So Rashi picks up upon a very specific Lashem. The Torah says that when Amalek attacked Klai Yisrael while they were heading towards Mount Torah, why, why did they do it? What was the reason? Why then? Well, what was Mount Torah going to be? It was going to close the gap. It was going to close the gap between us and Hashem. What is Amalek? Amalek is the gap. There's a suicidal battle, but it didn't matter because that is what Amalek represents. They had to keep the gap disconnected. So what does it say? It says... So Rashi gives three interpretations of the word karcha. One is kara, happenstance, which is what suffix represents. Like, we're here, arms in hand, ready to kill you, but we just happen to be on the road. We didn't really, there's no meaning behind this, there's no intention here. That's what Amalek represents. Happenstance, randomness, chance. There's no deeper mazel, there's no deeper hashkacha. The world isn't 
directly connected to Hashem, a direct expression of Hashem's hashgacha. No, everything's correct. Everything's happenstance. Carry. That's number one. Number two is in, a, in addition to happenstance, there's another form of carry, which is spiritual impurity. Not carry as in happenstance, but carries in spiritual impurity, which is really interesting because Amalek comes from Amalek's parents. Really, his mother is a concubine, which is the root of Amalek is an, an uncommitted relationship. Marriage is when you're committed to each other, where there's the Ramban talks about how marriage is the paradigm for true connection with Hashem. How the relationship between man and wife is the relationship between us and Hashem, and the deepest form of connection and commitment and love and oneness. And Amalek says, no, we're just animals. Carry is spiritual impurity. We're just in it for the physical relationship. There's no deeper spiritual connection in marriage and physical intimacy. No. That's a physical, mundane, animalistic element of life. You know, we engage, we have brismila. We take the most physical organ in our body, we uplift it. We say you can connect the physical to the spiritual. Connect the body to the head. Malika. Amalek says disconnect the higher from the lower. There's no connection between us and Hashem. There's no connection between the physical and the spiritual. There's no connection between physical acts and spiritual connection. Don't even talk to me about mitzvahs. Don't talk to me about deeper marriage. No. Kara happens and carries spiritual impurity. And the last one the Rashi mentions based on the Midrash is kar, to cool off. What, what was cooling off? Amalek attacked Klaistro and they lost. But they cooled off the flame because the rest of the nations of the world backed off. They didn't join in with Klaistro. The gap was not fully closed. The world didn't fully reconnect Hashem and you know, Mashiach didn't come. What's car? What's the call? So the Rashi quotes a mushal of someone that jumps into a scathing hot bath. Scathing hot. He burns himself seriously, but he cools off the blood. He cools off the flame. He cools off the bath. Yes, I'm all like almost got obliterated. And they, 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 they lost that battle. But they won. They won. Because it looks like they lost, but they weren't trying to actually win the battle. They were trying to make sure that the gap wasn't closed, that the rest of humanity didn't join in with Klaishal, and that we didn't close the Hamin Ha'etz. We didn't close the Ayaka. We didn't close that gap. And that gap, now now it's our mission. What we accepted on Harsina was the mission of closing that gap. That is our entire existence in this world, is to fulfill Adam's original mission, which is to close the gap. Originally, it could have been closed by Adam just not eating from Eitzatas. Now we have to close it. We have to perform mitzvahs. We have to learn Torah. We have to achieve our perfection. We have to uplift this world, and we have to close that gap. That is our mission. Amalek made sure that we didn't achieve that mission. And this, this is unbelievable. Because, what, what is the story of Purim? The story of Purim is a powerful story. What, what does Haman do? He, take, he, he takes a lottery. Poor. What's a lottery? Random. Happenstance. Suffolk. Amalek. We destroy Klai Yisrael. With a lottery. Yeah. What does he, what does he say to Achashverosh? He says, this is an Amifuzar. This is a scattered nation. Why? Because when we're, he was tapping into a truth. Our job is to connect not only ourselves together as Klai Yisrael, not only the world together, but the world to Hashem. But we can only do that when we are one as a nation. What was the, the, the only way that we can experience Mount Torah when all of Klai came together as one? What did Haman point out? They're scattered, and that's how we can destroy them. Because they're not connected as one. What was the Tikkun? 
because Haman created this milchama against Israel, we came together as a seaboard, mitfila, as one seaboard, oneness, cloud. That's how we overcame. That was the real Purim battle. It was oneness versus twoness. It was overcoming that, that breakdown, shattering, and scattering that Amalek tried to tap into. Because randomness only exists within multiplicity. But oneness, there's no randomness. Because it's all one. And that's really a, a very essential part of that battle. But, but let's delve deeper. Because what is the real way? How do you overcome Amalek? We talked about this in the very beginning. The way that you overcome Amalek is by doing what? By placing your hands above your head. So the Torah says that when Moshe's hands were above his head, they were victorious over Amalek. When his hands were below his head, they weren't. So, so it's almost like, well, is this like voodoo? Is this magic? What, what, is, what does this mean? What is going on here? So the simple answer is that it's nothing to do with Moshe's hands. It's nothing to do with Moshe's hands. Is that when Klai Yisrael looked up and saw Moshe's hands were raised above, when they looked up and saw Moshe's hands, they recognized that the Mulchan is coming from Hashem, not from our physical might, but from Hashem. That's when they were victorious. But when they looked down... And they said, no, 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 this is about our victory, our battle, our strength, whether we're brilliant military strategists, whether we can overcome the Amaleks, Amalekis, that's when they were losing. So that's a simple understanding. But there's a deeper approach as well. What does it mean hands above the head? Hands represent Misa, represents action. The head represents Seichel, intellect, where you make cheshbonos, you make decisions, calculations, you decide what, should, what you should do, what's best. Moshe's hands above his head represent Nasa Venishma. Right? First, I will do what Hashem wants. First, I will act as a reflection of Hashem's will. Then I'll make Hashem's. Then I'll try to understand. Then I'll say, what does Hashem really want? But I'm not going to make that effect. What do I do? First, I'm going to do what Hashem wants. If Hashem tells me to do something, I do it. Not because, you know, I think it's the right thing to do, but because I know it's the right thing to do. Because it's Hashem's will. And Hashem's will is the transcendent root of reality. It is not only... Is it rational, but it's post-rational. Is the, is the root... You, you don't ask questions when you're dealing with the absolute truth itself. You're dealing with, you ask questions when you're trying to understand the truth. But if you know something is absolutely true, you can understand it later. And the fact that it's absolutely true is the level of understanding that you need. That's the only level you need to know what you should do. Is it important to understand? Is it important to delve into when we learn Gemara? And of course, you ask questions, you delve deeper. But... The roots themselves, Nasev and Nishma, is such a powerful principle. That's Adam, Nasev and Nishma. If Adam would have done Nasev and Nishma, he wouldn't have sinned. Nasev and Nishma is the root of overcoming Amalek. Because Amalek is once you start making Cheshbonos, once you start making these calculations, you start having your own personal Cheshbonos, you start having doubts, you start creating something that is other than the Ratzon Hashem. Moshe's hands above his head represents the concept of first doing what Hashem wants, then understanding what Hashem wants. And that is how you overcome Amalek. Adam didn't understand that. That was Adam's, I mean, remember, in a very, 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 very subtle, nuanced way. Can't even begin to understand what the, the, the actual nature of what it was like to make that Cheshbon. We don't know. We, we can never even fathom, or we never will fathom, what it meant to be Adam and to make that decision. But on our level, what we're trying to understand it, that's the Nakuda we pointed out. And this becomes absolutely incredible as it plays out in the Perm story. Because where does Perm come from? Where does Haman come from? I mean, I eat, but where does Haman actually come from? From Agag. 
And Shoal had the opportunity to kill Agak. Shoal was given the opportunity to wipe out Amalek, to wipe out Haman. Shmuel said, Hashem told you to kill Agag. And Shoal says, no, I'm not going to do it. Why did he do it? Cheshbonos, is that moral? Is this? Is that? Whatever the reason was, Shoal didn't kill Agag. And that night, the Gemara talks about how that very night, Haman was, was the seed of Haman was created. Ultimately, it will become Haman. What was Shoal's sin? So, there's there's two aspects. One is is ego. Basically, he had his cheshbonos. Hashem said, but he said, no, no, I know best. But Tzedek says it was a repeat of Chet Adam. That Shaul said, no, no, no. If, if we kill Agag now, everything will be done. But if we don't kill Agag, if we keep Amalek alive, if we keep the gap, then we'll maintain our free will. We'll be able to achieve greatness. We'll be able to do so much more for Hashem. It was the same exact cheshbon that Adam Harisha made. Create the gap. Create a, a place for us to do our avoda. But Hashem, no, no, I know Hashem said, but he really wants this. It was a repeat. It was the exact same mistake. And what resulted was the gap. Haman, the story of Purim. And it was real. It, it was Hamid Ha'itz. And, and that was Shaul's downfall. So what, what was this, this? Something really important to understand. We said, again, Adam's decision was wrong, but good came from it. What was the good that came from Shaul's decision? So first of all, besides for the story of Purim, which obviously there was a lot of good to that too, the Gemara in Gittin, Amdaf Nun Zayn says that the grandchildren of Haman learned in Bnei Brak. Meaning, Tamidich HaChaman came from Haman. Good came from this evil. Amazing things came from this horrible decision. That doesn't make it the right decision. Right? So the same exact... It's parallel to exactly how we framed the Chet of Adam. Good came from it. There obviously is good to it. It wasn't the right decision. This is where we come full circle. And this becomes... This is unbelievable. Right? We're going to end with this. This last point. What was the Tikkun of Shaul's sin? Esther. Right? The Gemara says that Esther came from Shaul. Esther was in Shaul's mistake. What was Shaul's mistake? He birthed Haman into reality because he didn't kill Agag. What was Esther's tikkun? Esther was the reason Haman was killed. Esther is, was, our, was our representative who, who basically, for Klai Yisrael, did the unthinkable and helped us overcome Haman and defeat Amalek. What's the nature of this story with Esther? What was her decision? So, first of all, we know she was a son of Shaul. She came from Sheba Binyamin. Mordechai commands or, or tells Esther that the Ratzon Hashem is for you to go to Achashverosh. You are supposed to go to Achashverosh and engage him in, you know, you know I mean, the, the, the Pashat level is to engage him and ask him to save Klai Yisrael, which she did eventually through her brilliance. But Chazal also talked about how by going to Achashverosh, she also was engaging in a physical relationship with him. And that was Aser. So you're thinking, what do you mean is Aser? So first of all, why was this whole thing a problem? Number one, to go to Achashverosh without Achashverosh calling Esther was suicide. Everyone knows this part. Online, there was the whole thing that she got Achashverosh's favorite, Achashverosh, you know, pointed the scepter, and, and she wasn't killed. That wasn't natural. Naturally, you go to the king without being called, you're killed. Achashverosh asked Esther to commit suicide. Basically, be Moser Nefesh. Give up your life for Klai Esther said, okay, I'm willing to be Moser Nefesh for Klai 
then Achashir is didn't kill her. But that's another problem because we know that there are three Averis you're not allowed to violate even to save someone's life. And even to save your own life. You're not allowed to kill someone to save your life. You're not allowed to serve Odazara. And you're not allowed to engage in Gilirayas, adultery. And yet Esther went actively to Achashverosh and engaged in adultery. How was this mutter? So the answer is this mutter because to save Olkaiso. But let's, 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 let's frame this. They were in a relationship for years and years and years. Nine years, their relationship. And for nine years, how was it mutter for Esther to engage in a relationship with Achashverosh? So Chazal discussed this in many places in Shas, you know, particularly in Sanhedrin, Yom, Psachim. And the Mepharshim talk about four different, uh, the Rishonim and Achorim talk about four different reasons why Esther was allowed to do this. One possibility is that she wasn't married. So it's not Gili Raya, she wasn't married. But we know that Esther was married to Mordechai. So according to some, they, had a, they, got, they got divorced. According to others, they weren't actually married. Another approach is that Achashverosh was a guy, and Gili Rice doesn't apply between Jews and non-Jews. Number three is that she was passive, Kark Olam. And number four is that it was Hanas Asma. It was for his own benefit. So we're not going to go into the Lamdas. This is a whole sugi. We can delve into this for hours and hours. And actually, I've given Shirim on this for, for <laughs> going on this for hours and hours. This is not the time to delve deeper into this. But you have to understand something. For nine years... Esther engaged in a mutter relationship with Ahasuerus. And according to many, this, after nine years of engaging in whether it was passive, we're not going to get into the details. For nine years, Mordechai says, now do it by Asuerus. Now, now, now do it in an, in an Asuerus way. Now go actively, and, and according to, to the opinion that it was only mutter because she was passive, now she's actively going to Ahasuerus. The Gemara says in Megillah, on Daf Tes Vav Amun Aleph, it says, Kasher Avanti Avanti, this was Esther saying, that now I'm going to be Esther to you, Mordechai. Because until then, they were married, Esther was going to be able to be remarried, or at least make, remain married, to Mordechai. But after this, that was the end of their relationship. It was Esther saying goodbye to her marriage with Mordechai. It was Esther saying goodbye to nine years of meticulous avodas Hashem, and going into doing something that was absolutely Esther now according to many opinions. She was now going to commit a Gilirayas. It was an Avera. But we're coming full circle. Full circle. Ready? It was an Avera Lishma. It was an Avera Lishma. And where did this Avera Lishma come from? Right? Because imagine how much she didn't want to do this. But Mordechai is saying, and this was obviously another part of this, is that this was a transition towards Torah Shabbat Peh, which is connecting to the Ratzon Hashem without Nevuah. Where, you know, Perm is that transition marker, so there was still an element of Nivu, it was transitioning. You know, Esther, Mizel's Esther becomes the last canonized book in, in Tanakh. There's a whole machlokas in Chazal, whether or not it should be canonized, whether it should be part of Tanakh. But we, Esther knew this was the Ratzon Hashem, and when it gets everything she wanted to do, but she gave up what she wanted to do. She gave up her ego. It was an Avera Lishma that Hashem told her to do. It was an Avera Lishma that we know is the Ratzon Hashem. So Esther is mentake in the chayn of Adam Rishon. Esther is mentake in the chayn of Shaul. What does she do? She engages in the Avera Lishma. And that overcomes Amalek. That overcomes Hamid Ha'ez. That overcomes Haman. That is the death of Haman. That destroys Amalek. That was our victory on Purim. Avera Lishma, where Esther put her hands above her head, was 
she negated her ego. Nasevinishma. She overcame Shaul's mistake, and that was the ultimate taken for Shaul. It, it's all it's it's powerful. Because she was metaking. She was metaking Shaul's sin. The, the, it, it's, it's fascinating because if you think about it, let's just we'll end with this. Haman's birth and Haman's destruction come from this. Because the birth came from Shaul putting his head above his hands, saying, I know what's best. And Haman's death came from Esther putting her hands above her hands above her head, which is the opposite, saying, I, I know what I want to do, but I'm gonna do what Hashem wants me to do. I'm gonna do what Hashem knows is best. Now, there's a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara Megillah, the Vigimala Bay, says that because of Shaul's modesty, Shaul had Esther descend from him. And the simple understanding is Shaul was Zochet had Esther descend from him because he was modest. So the simple shot is that you know, it was a reward. It was a reward for Shaul being modest. But there's such a deeper layer here as well. Because it wasn't a zuchus that because he was modest, he was zuchus, oh, now you're going to have an amazing son, Esther. It was because Shaul was modest, because Shaul made his own cheshbonus of what he thought was supposed to be the correct thing to do, because Shaul created Haman, because of his modesty, because of what he thought was right, because of what he thought of his humility, of his humility. Shaul had Esther, who was able to be attacking what he did because of his modesty, and that was the ultimate zuchus of having Esther being attacking his mistake. It's a very different way of how we think of the relationship between Esther and Shaul. Esther came from Shaul to be attacking Shaul's mistake, which is exactly what she did. The victory over Amalek came from putting our hands above our head. Come from recognizing Nasa Come from recognizing the ultimate teaching life is giving up your ego, giving up that, that notion of always thinking that we know best and always having the, the, and we can say humility again here, the proper humility to say, I want to always ask myself, what does Hashem want from me? What is Hashem really asking from me? What is the Ratzon Hashem here? Not what is the twisted Ratzon Hashem where I convince myself this is the Ratzon Hashem really is what I want. And we have to constantly ask, who's the I that we refer to? Am I referring to Anochi Hashem? That's the I that I'm listening to? Or is it Ani? I. I want this. I want this. And Asir Ratzon Chikertzon, the whole goal of life is to align yourself with the rest of Hashem, to connect yourself to the truth, to Hashem, learn Torah, connect to the ultimate source of reality, and constantly align yourself with that. And that's the biggest struggle. That's what Purim represents. It's finding Hashem in the darkness, where Nevuah ended, and where we live in the state of darkness, the darkness that was created by the Chitav of Hamin Ha'etz, that gap, that gap exists. And it's our job to close that gap. It's our job to, to recognize that it's only by giving up our ego by giving up our assertion. And yes, part of that means becoming great, achieving your greatness, fulfilling your potential, helping others become great, devoting your life towards something bigger than yourself. But at the end of the day, the ultimate challenge in life, and this is the ultimate challenge, is on your journey to greatness, are you doing this for yourself? Or are you doing this for Hashem? Is it all about you? Or are you part of something really bigger than yourself? And when you have that in mind, when you always keep in the back of your head that this is always about Hashem. Yes, Hashem put me in this world. Hashem gave me life. But I'm devoting my life to Hashem. It's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about how big I am, how important I am, how smart I am, how brilliant I am, how beautiful I am, how nice I am, how good I am, how much I've grown. All of that is incredible. 
but only when it's all about rooting yourself back to devoting all of that to Hashem. So my bracha to you is that this parim, we tap into this idea in the deepest way. That we recognize hamin ha'etz, that that's our job in this world. That we are here to close the gap. And that one day, one day we'll, we'll recognize that we can still tap into the good of what Adam did. And that, yes, we are in this world to fulfill Adam's, to be metakin Adamsen. And that at the end of the day, we have to tap into that mission. We have to embrace that mission. We have to be excited about that mission. And every day we can use every aspect of our day to saying, how can I close a little more of that gap? How can I make it so that there is no longer Hamid Haitz? Have an amazing parm, stay inspired, keep growing, keep striving, and remember, every day, let's close a little bit of that gap.